technically. Is it good morning or is it like good afternoon to us? Whatever. It's 1 a.m. <laughs> That's what it is. Oh. It's 1 a.m. <laughs> okay. That's what I'm see. saying. I see where you're going with this. Sorry. Hello. Hello. How was your week? It was fine. Cool. Welcome to Who Knew. Hello. And uh, good. I'm gl- glad you had a good week. Thanks. How was your week? Same, 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 same. Cold. But yeah. uh, same. It's cold, but we're used to that. Yeah. I'm over it. Yep. We got up early today. Got a lot of stuff done. Yep. And yeah. yeah. I don't really have anything. No? Do you? No, I'm just on vacation for this next week, so that's pretty exciting. I. Maybe by this time this episode has come out, I'm not too sure. We'll have come up with some new merchandise. Oh. Which is what you're wearing right now. Oh. Oh. Yeah, I sent it a picture of it to Monique and she was like stoked about it. So sick. Me too. Wearing one of our new shirts, our tester shirts, to see if the colors came out the way we wanted them to, and they're badass. Yeah, so. <clears throat> super cool. Love them. I'm excited because it's with the artwork that Monique did for us. Yep. So, even more exciting. Super but, yeah. dope. And it, last week, I had said that we were going to have another spooky episode this week. I lied. It, she didn't lie. I was mistaken and panicked in the grocery store after <laughs> we realized the, yesterday that we had been researching two totally different things. things. <laughs> Luckily, I got my way. <laughs> because she had already done all her research for the episode I thought we were doing. And I had done no research for the one that she thought we were doing so i won that one and we will be doing spoopy next week nope we will not no what because it's march next week is not march but the week that this comes out the following week will be march oh son of a bitch yeah ah. so macy just lied no for the i month- didn't lie i just don't know numbers <laughs> we're a week ahead of things so for the month of march we're, so this episode, we're going to do a little sneak peek of what we're doing the whole month of March, which is going to be Hollywood-themed, which is going to be crimes, scary stuff, murder. interesting history, murder, so all things Hollywood. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. I had to get Sammy on board. It's okay. <laughs> I'm still climbing the ladder to get on board. Ladder to the top of the Hollywood sign where hopefully she will not jump off like... <laughs> Like that one, one of our episodes that we're going to talk about. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. Great. So, okay. You ready? I'm ready. What, what she got for us? I'm going to tell you about what I consider to be the solved murder of the Black Dahlia. Okay. You ready? Like what I consider to be the solved stories of the Diallo Pass. Yeah. Love it. Yep. Totally. So, <clears throat> if you're unfamiliar with the case... You can find numerous other podcasts that do literal entire seasons on the Black Dahlia. One that I recommend is called Root of Evil, and it is by the family members of the man that is pretty much, at this point, suspected to have been the killer. Yeah. So they do a whole podcast on him and growing up with him, and then 
things that they found, not just, like, in the police records, but, like, in his old homes and things like that that linked him to the murder. So. Gotcha. Very interesting. Totally recommend it. If you're into reading, I recommend all of Steve Hodel's books. Black Dahlia Avenger, Black Dahlia Avenger 2. I think there's a third one. I'm not sure. Anywho, what do you know about the Black Dahlia? I know that she was cut in half and she had that big old smile on her face. Totally. So her name was Elizabeth Short. She was born on July 29th in 1924 in the Hyde Park section of Boston. 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 Uh, She was the third of five daughters to Cleo and uh, Phoebe May Short around 1927. So when she was about three... The family relocated to Portland, Maine, before they settled in Medford, Massachusetts, which is a part of, like, Boston. And this is where she was pretty much raised and spent most of her life before she got out of the house. Her dad built miniature golf courses. That was his job. Oh, that's so cool. Until the 1929 stock market crash, where he lost pretty much (gasps) everything. The savings, the family was totally broke. In 1930, her dad's car was found abandoned in the Charlestown, on the Charlestown Bridge, and (gasps) it was assumed that he had committed suicide by jumping into the river. They never found him. Believing that he was dead, Elizabeth's mother moved with her five daughters into a small apartment in the med, in Medford and worked as a bookkeeper to support them. Um, Elizabeth Short actually, interestingly, I think, uh, had lung surgery at 15 after having, like, a ton, just over and over and over bronchitis and asthma attacks, Ugh. just, like, to the point where she had to have surgery for it. And the doctors, after that, suggested that the family relocate to kind of a milder climate, like we talked about with, like, tuberculosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of the same thing that they said that people should do for their, for lung health, I guess, um, during the winter months to prevent further respiratory problems. So then they sent Elizabeth to spend winters in Miami with some family friends. Nice. And then she would go back and spend the rest of the year in Medford with her mom and sisters. Uh, in her sophomore year, she ended up dropping out of Medford High School. Late 1942, Short's mother received a letter of apology from her presumed dead husband. What? Which revealed that he was in fact alive and had started a new life in California. The shadiness. <laughs> this is why you don't trust men. Yeah. I'm just kidding. So, kind like, of. after that, Short... Not sure. I'll just call her Elizabeth. She's put in my notes as short pretty much the whole time. So Elizabeth relocated to Vallejo, California to live with her dad. What? Whom she hadn't seen since she was six. She was 18 at this time. She had not seen him uh, since she was six. I would not. If my Mm -hmm. dad just left my whole family, I'd be like, fuck you. Yeah, it ended up being pretty toxic and problematic anyways. He had been working at... Um, like a shipyard, a naval shipyard on the San Francisco Bay, mm-hmm. and they argued all the time. And it ended up, she ended up moving out in January of, which was like the next month, yeah. Basically, um, after that, she took a job at the BX, which is the base exchange at Camp Cook, hmm. uh, which is now Vandenberg Air Force Base. I've been there; it's pretty cool, and. She lived with, like, a bunch of friends and then briefly with an Army Air Force sergeant who reportedly abused her. Mm. She ended up leaving the base 
in just that area in mid-1943 and moved to Santa Barbara, where she was arrested on September 23rd, 1943 for underage drinking at a local bar. The authorities sent her back to Medford because she was so young, even though she was 18, which is weird. Yeah, she's uh, But yeah, they sent adult. her back across the U.S., uh, but she returned instead to Florida. Instead of going to Boston, she's like, fuck that, I'm going to Florida. And, um... Don't blame her. Sometimes visited Massachusetts again, but that was pretty much it. While she's in Florida, she met Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. Wow. Decorated Army Air Force officer at the 2nd Air Commando Group. And he was training for a deployment to the China-Burma-India Theater of World War II. She told her friends that he had written and proposed to her through letters while he was recovering from some injuries from a plane crash in India. She said she accepted his offer, but that he died in a second crash on August 10th in 1945, less than a week before uh, Japan ended the war. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. <gasps> That's so tragic. Yeah. she. It's a little bit questionable if that all actually happened or if that was something that she just said yeah, to people, but to get, like, regardless, it's sad either way. Yeah. Um, she relocated to Los Angeles in 1946 to visit Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, whom she had known from Florida. So she liked the military men. As do most. As do a lot of women. Yeah. He was stationed at the Naval Reserve Air Base on Long Beach, and she spent the last six months of her life in Southern California, mostly in the Los Angeles area, and then shortly before her death, she had been working as a waitress and rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. Hmm. She has been variously described as and depicted as being like a would-be actress, like she was trying to make it big. However, um, she had no known acting jobs or credits, so we can't prove if that was actually a road she was trying to go down or if that was just a trope that people put on pretty much all pretty women in Los Angeles or in Hollywood. But, I mean, even to this day, there's people that are, like, not in credits yeah. that have been on productions. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yep. I'd like to think that any person in the 20s moved to Los Angeles to become a star. <laughs> yeah, nobody grew up there. Yeah, no one grows up in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, so why do they even have high schools? <laughs> they, just, they have, like, night school and acting schools, and that's it. <laughs> that's it, and they have, like, a little theater club, yep. an improv club, yep, <laughs> all yep. these little clubs, uh -huh. but no school. Yep. No school, though. <laughs> oh, gosh. So on January 9th, 1947, Elizabeth returned to her house in Los Angeles after a brief trip to San Diego with Robert Red Manley, a 25-year-old married salesman she had been dating. Ooh. He stated that he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel um, and that she was supposedly meeting her sister, who was visiting from Boston that afternoon. Some accounts, staff at the Biltmore recalled having seen her. Or having seen her using uh, the lobby telephone, and then shortly after, she was allegedly seen by patrons of the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge, which is about a little under half a mile away from the Biltmore. Okay. On the morning of January 15th, her naked body was found severed in two pieces on a vacant lot on the west side of South Norton Avenue, Ugh. midway between Coliseum Street and West 39th Street in Limert Park in L.A., at the time, that neighborhood was pretty underdeveloped. It was just a lot of lots yeah. here and there. 
Local resident Betty Bersinger discovered the body at approximately 10 a.m. while walking her three-year-old daughter. Oh, God. No. She initially thought she had found a discarded store mannequin. She realized it was a dead body, so she went to a nearby house and called the police. Oh, my gosh. Um, Elizabeth's severely mutilated body was completely severed at the waist and then drained of blood, leaving her skin a bright white. That's probably why she thought it was a mannequin. Mm -hmm. It's, like, such an unnatural color. Yeah. Medical examiners determined that she had been dead for around 10 hours prior to the discovery, leaving her time of death either sometime during the evening of January 14th or the early mornings, or early morning hours of January 15th. Body had apparently been washed by the killer. Her face had been slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears, creating an effect known as the, quote, Glasgow smile. She had several cuts on her thighs and breasts where entire portions of flesh had been sliced away. Lower half of her body was positioned a foot away from the upper, and her intestines had been tucked neatly under her butt. What? Yeah, so they weren't, like, spilling out, and they weren't in there. They were, like, tucked... Under. That's weird. And the corpse had been posed with her hands over her head, her elbows bent at right angles, and her legs spread apart. As soon as the body was discovered, of course, a crowd of people and reporters started to gather around the scene. Yeah. Which is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> as we've talked about how many times on this podcast. Los Angeles... Herald Express reporter Aggie Underwood was among the first to arrive at the scene and took several photos of the corpse and the crime scene, which you can find on the internet if you just search it. Near the body, detectives located a heel print on the ground amid the tire tracks, and a cement sack containing watery blood was also found nearby. Ew. And then an autopsy was performed on January 16th by Frederick Newbar, who was the L.A. County coroner. I will give a... I'm not going to go deep into this because it's just a lot of medical talk and I'll give you the, the blow by blows. Um, so the body had been cut completely in half by a technique taught in the 1930s called a hemicorporectomy. Yeah. So the lower half of the body gets removed by transecting the lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrae, which keeps you from having to cut through bone, basically. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. His report noted very little bruising along the incision line, which suggested it had been performed after she died. The skull was not fractured, but there was a, quite a bit of bruising that was noted on the front and the side, like the right side of her scalp, and a little bit of bleeding in the subarachnoid space on the right side, uh, which is consistent with just being hit in the head. The cause of death was determined to be hemorrhaging from the cuts on her face and shock from blows to the head and face. Nubar also noted that she may have been raped. Uh, They took samples from her body and tested for the presence of sperm, but the results came back negative. But there were physical indications that she had been raped by something. Oh, okay. If you get my drift. Yeah. Um, She ended up being identified after her fingerprints were sent to the FBI via sound photo, which was a device that transmitted images by telephone. Kind of cool. That sounds really Super cool. weird. I don't understand it at all. It was normally used for no, uh, news photographs, but they used it for her fingerprints on this occasion. And thank goodness she got arrested in 1943 because they took her fingerprints then and they were able to identify her. This is why you should all get arrested, folks. Yep. 
Um, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Immediately following her identification, this is the shittiest thing ever. So warning. Like, beyond what happened to her body, this part is really shitty. The William Randolph Hearst's LA examiner contacted her mother, Phoebe, in Boston and told her that her daughter had won a beauty contest. It was only after prying as much personal information as they could from Phoebe that reporters actually told her that her daughter had in fact been murdered. Wait, the police department said that she had won a beauty contest? Oh, reporters did. Yes. Oh, thank God. Yes. I was like, God damn it, cops no, can't no, no, get no, your no. shit together. No, no, no. The the um, LA Examiner. Okay. Which oh. was a, a newspaper. Oh my God, that's super fucked up. Yep. The newspaper ended up offering to pay her airfare and accommodations if she would travel to LA to keep to help with the police investigation, which was another ploy since the newspaper kept her away from the police and other reporters to protect its scoop. Oh yeah. The Examiner and another Hearst newspaper, the L.A. Herald Express, later sensationalized the case. One article from the Examiner describing the black tailored suit short was last seen wearing as a, quote, tight skirt and a sheer blouse. It was a suit. (laughs) What? (laughs) And then the media nicknamed her the Black Dahlia and described her as an adventuress who, quote, prowled Hollywood Boulevard, end quote. And additional newspaper reports, such as one published in the LA Times on January 17th, deemed the murder a, quote, sex fiend slaying. Are you serious? Yep. What? So, we're going to change gears a little bit. We're going to talk about a man named George Hodel. Okay. Very important. Very important. Also a piece of shit. Um, George Hill Hodel Jr. was born in 1907 and raised in LA. He was well-educated and highly intelligent. He scored a 186 on an early IQ test. Genius level is considered 140 or above. Oh, wow. He was also a musical prodigy, playing solo piano concerts at Los Angeles' Shrine Auditorium. Fun fact, composer Sergei Rachmaninoff traveled to his parents' house to watch George play. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, George attended South Pasadena High School, graduated at age 15, and then went to Caltech in Pasadena, but he was forced to leave the university after one year due to a sex scandal involving a professor's wife. He got her pregnant, and then he wanted to raise their child together, and she was like, no, I am married. Yeah. Not doing that. Um, it ended up causing her marriage to fall apart, which sucks, but... He also left the university, so that's kind of how that all ended. By 1928, Hodel was in a common-law marriage with a woman named Amelia and had a son by her named Duncan. Then in the 30s, he was legally married to a model from San Francisco named Dorothy Anthony and had a daughter with her named Tamar. He ended up graduating from Berkeley pre-med in June of 1932, and then right after that, he enrolled in medical school at the University of California and received his medical degree in 1936, and then he ended up having a uh, successful medical practice, and he became the head of the county's social hygiene bureau. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't like the way <laughs> sounds like this sounds weird. Yeah, sounds, sounds like a made-up department that someone did just so they could get paid more. Yep. Uh, he was moving in affluent Los Angeles society by the 1940s. Um, he was really obsessed with 
the darker side of a movement called surrealism, which is like a type of art form. He became friends with a photographer named Man Ray and a film director named John Houston. And pretty much everybody that was in their friend circle and they did weird surrealist shit all the time. Like they had weird parties. They did weird sex stuff. Like okay. they like shared sex stuff. It was weird. Um, well, whatever floats their boat. Whatever floats their boat. However, <laughs> <laughs> with Ray and some other surrealists, he shared an interest in sadomasochism. Oh. The darker side of art and philosophy with the young men of the Hollywood scene, and he shared a fondness of partying, drinking, and womanizing. His second legal wife, whom he married in 1940, was John Houston's ex-wife, Dorothy Harvey. This is the second Dor- Dorothy, and he wanted to keep them separate, so he called her Dorero. <laughs> yeah, he called her Dorero. Where did he get that from? It, it, it's like, I says will... it in the podcast, Ruvival, I don't remember what it is, it's some weird thing. I will call you Dorito. <laughs> <laughs> You're my little corn chip. <laughs> I'm changing your name oh, in my phone to Corn Chip, God. by the way. Oh my God, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> he called her Dorero to avoid confusion with his other wife, Dorothy Anthony, at least within their circle, but she's better known as Dorothy Houston Hodel to pretty much everybody else. He purchased the Souden House in 1945. And lived there from 45 until 1950. And this house is important because it was built in 1926 by Lloyd Wright, who is the son of the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. And since then, it's been registered as a historic landmark. So, Hoda was basically a polygamist. Okay. For lack of a better term. In the late 1940s, around the time of the deaths of Elizabeth Short and then his... Secretary Miss Spaulding, Hodel was living living with Torero and their three kids, and his first legal wife, Dorothy Anthony, and their daughter Tamar, and at times his original common law wife Amelia. Oh, God, <laughs> like they were all in this house at various times together, and then other women that he was like fucking. Were they like down for that? Was everybody down for everybody that? Everybody was aware at least. Okay, well, like it wasn't a secret thing. You know they were literally just like living there. That is all that matters to me. As long as there were no secrets, everybody was aware and that was yeah. the life they wanted to yeah. live. He was also prone to taking temporary lovers, like I said, multiple witnesses. Later suggested such really a relationship might have occurred between him and Elizabeth Short. He left the United States in March of nineteen fifty for Hawaii. Yes. Uh, which was then a U.S. territory where he married an upper-class Filipino woman named Hortensia Laguda. After another four children, they divorced in the 1960s. She was later a member of the Philippine Congress, which is super cool. Um, Hodel returned to the United States in 1990 and married legally for the fourth time a woman named June in San Francisco, where he remained for the rest of his life, and then he died in 1999 at the age of 91. He had some, like, heart problems, and he basically, like, hoarded his heart medication and then took a lot of it at once. Oh, that's not good for you. That's what Steve says in the- his son Steve says in the podcast I listen to, so... That's not good for you. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> well, and he was a doctor, so he knew exactly what he was doing and what, what it would do to him. 
Was so, he ever divorced from any of these people? No. Or did he just keep getting married? It's unknown. Is it a little bit of like an ancient home situation? I didn't know you could just do that. Or what? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently you unknown. can just do that. Unknown. <laughs> George Hodel first came under suspicion for murder. Just murder, not the murder. For murder in 1945 following the death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding, by a, quote, drug overdose. He was suspected of having murdered her in order to cover up his financial fraud, such as billing patients for tests that were never performed oh, or were gosh. not needed. Um, this is why we don't trust our healthcare system. I know, right? And to protect valuable secrets that he had obtained about police and politicians from patients obtaining illegal abortions. So Ruth knew this. They were dating. Okay. He didn't want to date anymore. She was upset about it. So she's like, fuck you. I'm going to oust you. And he was like, fuck you. I'm going to kill you. Oh, um, this escalated quickly. It did. Um, so basically what happened was he went over because she was upset about something and she was like, I'm going to tell the police about you. And he was like, just wait. I want to come over. I think I might want to get back together. Yada, oh, yada, yada. No. He goes back over. Somewhere in there, she quote unquote takes a lethal overdose. He waits for a long ass time and then calls a taxi after it is too late. Yeah. Puts her in the taxi, goes in the taxi with her, and basically pronounces her dead. That's not how that works. No. I'm the taxi almost... was going to the hospital, but... But I'm almost certain that that... Even no. back... When was this? In the 50s? 40s? Yeah, 40s. That is not how that works. <laughs> There's no 911 back then, but that's still not how no. it works. No. no, no, You don't just take her to the hospital and be like, yeah, she's dead. Don't even worry about it. Yep. Yep. Um, at about this time, he left briefly for China, where he worked with the United Nations Relief and Rehab Administration, and these events first came to public attention in 2004. So, like, he was a suspect, but nothing really ever came of it. Yeah. It's believed that he was notorious for paying off the police, which we'll see over and over and over. January 15th of 1947, Elizabeth Short got fa- was found, uh, or discovered dead. As we said before, she suffered gruesome mutilation yeah. and notably her body was cut in half in the way that I described earlier. Thing like that was a very medically like you have to have some knowledge to do what was done to her. Mm-hmm. Right? Especially like the way she was cut in half. Um the case earned major publicity as we know and prompted one of the largest investigations in the history of the LAPD and the case was technically never solved. Um, however, authorities at the time interviewed hundreds of suspects, including a ton of people who confessed to it falsely, ended up focusing on about 25, one of whom was George Hodel. Uh, various aspects of the case have suggested a strong connection to surrealism, including the works of Man Ray in particular. He has two works, I guess they're photographs or paintings, that one shows a female who is bisected in that way and her arms are positioned in the way that they were in the case of Elizabeth Short. Mm-hmm. He also shows one with a very absurdly wide smile. Mm-hmm. So, um, late 1949, George's teenage daughter, Tamar, accused him of incestuous sexual abuse Ugh. and impregnating her. After which, she was given a back-alley abortion so by him. He ended up being acquitted after a widely publicized trial. There were three wit- witnesses present in the trial. 
um, who supposedly participated in sex acts as well. Two of them testified at the trial, and the third recanted her earlier testimony, refused to come forward, theory being that Hodel had threatened her into silence, basically. Uh, the trial caused Tamar to look like a liar, who had fabricated the abuse allegation for attention, and at the time she was, like, 16, so... That leaves an impression on a, on a person. Yeah. Hodel came to police attention as a, a suspect in the Elizabeth Short murder in 1949 after the sexual abuse trial because they were focusing on a lot of known or suspected sex criminals in the area. And it had come out in the trial that Tamar had allegedly claimed that her father was the Black Dahlia murderer. Hmm. Way back then. Yeah. His medical degree also aroused suspicion, given the hypothesis that whoever bisected Short's body had some degree of surgical skill, like I said before. And at least eight witnesses claimed firsthand knowledge of a 1946 relationship between Elizabeth Short and George Hodel, then back in Los Angeles from China. Okay. Full details of the investigation came to light just in 2003 when a, quote, George Hodel... Black Dahlia file was discovered in the vault at the L.A. County District Attorney's Office by none other than his son, Steve Hodel. Yeah. Uh, Steve was a detective with the LAPD for years and years and years. He had, uh, he was a homicide detective for most of that, and he had about an 80% clearance rate. Dang. Which is phenomenal. Yeah. Compared to just department-wide, on average, they had about a 50%. But he had an 80%. So he was really raising good. their average. Yeah, he was badass. Um, the file revealed that in 1950, Hodel was the prime suspect of the Black Dahlia murder. His private Hollywood residence was electronically bugged by an 18-man DA-slash-LAPD task force between February 15th and March 27th of 1950. Transcripts of conversations revealed Hodel's references to performing illegal abortions, giving payoffs to law enforcement officials, and to his possible involvement in the deaths of his secretary and Elizabeth Short. Oh my gosh, this guy was just asking for it. <laughs> yeah, um, Steve had also, th- this was prompted basically by um, when his dad died, his dad told his current wife, or his wife at the time, destroy everything I have. Oh. And she did it, except <gasps> oh. for a photo album that she kept and she gave to Steve. And what did Steve find in that? A picture of Elizabeth Short. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. Oh, my god. Which he thought was fucking weird. Yeah. And a normal person would think that's weird. A homicide detective would think that's really? extra weird. That's weird. <laughs> so, like, I don't just, like, idolize people and put them in yeah. a photo album with, like, my family. Right. And so he went to the LAPD and none of them, nobody who had ever looked at the case, even saw George Hodel listed as a suspect. And it turned out every file... <gasps> that referenced him was ordered to be tossed and one lieutenant um didn't do that and he hid this one file that yeah. steve ended up finding uh in the vault so that somebody would find it someday good for him yep um the da tapes recorded george saying quote supposing i did kill the black dahlia can't prove it now i can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead they thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's just casual conversation. Yeah. Oh my god. He was just talking to some dude in his house. About it. <laughs> and this dude wasn't like, oh, I should probably talk to the cops. No, they referenced him as a German man. 
So Nazi. I don't know. Nobody I'm knows. I don't know. Hitler. Possibly. This is where we find Hitler. He came to hang out with George Hodel. Yes, because he obviously. knew. Obviously. Came all the way here. He needed the high IQ, the medical, yep. he, plastic surgery. He could have redone his face. There you go. Oh my God, we're solving everything. <laughs> <laughs> Um, George Hodel was also interviewed as a suspect in the nearby June 1949 murder of Louise Springer, which is, uh, considered the, quote, green twig murder, though mm-hmm. evidence to support this accusation was not publicly available until July of 2018. Dang. Mm-hmm. In October of 1949, Hodel's name was mentioned in a formal written report to the grand jury as one of five prime suspects in Elizabeth Short's murder, but none of the named suspects were submitted to the grand jury for consideration for indictment, as the investigation was still ongoing. Okay. So they never presented anything to a grand jury, really. Yeah. By April of 1950, Lieutenant Jemison, who was the good lieutenant we talked about that I mentioned, I didn't mention him by name, but his name was Lieutenant Jemison, he gathered enough evidence to charge Hodel and was about to arrest him for the Elizabeth Short murder, and then Hodel again left the United States. Is that when he went to Hawaii? That was one of the times he left. I don't know. Probably. How fucking shitty. Um, he obtained a degree in psychiatry and counseled prisoners in the territorial prison in Hawaii. Yep. For three years and then moved on to the Philippines where he started a new family. Appears to have remained there until 1990 where he finally died in 1999 in San Francisco without charges ever being filed. However... His son, Steve, like I said, has written that he believes Hodel re-entered the United States multiple times each year from 1958 to 1988, specifically in 1966 to 69 to commit more murders and then return to the Philippines after. Steve ended up collecting all this evidence that he has that he was writing books with, and he presented it to the current district attorney in L.A., who concluded and, and said on the record that if George Hodel was alive now, he would take it to trial and, and charge him formally. So that's the Black Dahlia murder. Are there no family members left to do, like, a wrongful death? Who would they even sue? Elizabeth Shorts? Yeah. I don't know. Are you able to sue a dead man? No, I don't think so. I don't know. Because a dead man can't defend himself, right. so probably not. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Isn't that fucked? That's super fucked. Yep. Also, did we... Are there any murders that were, like, also connected? To, like, you said that his son thinks that he came back every once in a while to do other murders, but are there any that are specifically linked besides the green twig thing? I think I'd have to read his book. Oh, okay. And find out. Um, nothing official has come out. I see. It's just besides his suspicion. That yeah. Okay. What is the green twig thing? Do you... How much about that? No. Oh, okay. This was the first I've ever heard of it. I know. It sounded like it was big because it had a name to it. And I was like, <laughs> I've never heard of that. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe hmm. he's Zodiac. That might have been what what I read about George, uh, Steve's thoughts. That he thinks he was a Zodiac? Uh-huh. That, I feel like we've talked about that, so that does sound familiar. Yes. I don't believe it, though. I'm not sure. I feel like he... Wouldn't have just done it for fun like he did. Like, what? why bring a gun into it now when you haven't been using a gun before? Yeah, and it seems like his whole point with Elizabeth Short was it's the ultimate surrealist art piece. 
Right. It was more of that's what it was creating a show versus actual act of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know either. That's weird. That's fucked. I hate it. <laughs> I love hate it. I love hate it. It's sad. Those pictures are brutal. Mm-hmm. Makes me even. Th- I look at them every single time I think about it, and it's never not surprised me. Well, I'm really excited for yours. I'm really Extremely excited to tell excited you. I'm very, very, very excited. This, I, like, I usually do all of my research, like, within, like, three to four days. And this one I did in one night. Because I was, like, so, like, balls deep into it, you know? <laughs> I was so into it. Um. Anyways... I'm talking about the murder of Constance Colleen Hopkins and Susan Marshall Drury. And we found out about the story because we've been obsessively watching Ink Master, which apparently we can't anymore. We got through all of the free ones. All of the free ones, but apparently now I have to pay for it. That's bullshit. (laughs) Fucking Amazon. (laughs) I'm pissed. As soon as the next uh, season season comes comes out, out, we'll get the... Third to last one. Yes, the season 12 or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but either way, that's annoying. Like, why am I paying for CBS Prime if you're not going to give me the free shit that you said was included with CBS Prime? Fuck them. Let's drop it. I am going to. Good. You hear that, Amazon? <laughs> Dropping your CBS Prime bullshit. It's not worth it. Everybody, it's not worth it. Not worth it for Ink It wasn't Master. worth it for the... 11 seasons we, <laughs> we binged. Watched. We didn't even get to finish and watch the season finale of season 8 because they make you pay for that one too. Yeah, they would like pick and choose what episode, like if it was a popular episode. They'd be like, mm, no, the, you're not the, gonna watch the this finale for free. Where Ryan, Ryan Ashley wins. Wins the first time a female wins, you have to pay for that. Yeah. What? That's such bullshit. Ugh. I was so annoyed that Trash. day. Anyway, so we were watching Ink Master obsessively. <laughs> Apparently now we're bitter. <laughs> and, um... Just a little. Yeah, we fell into this rabbit hole about the one of the hosts and co-judges, um, Dave Navarro. And... That's you watch on... Ink Master. He's in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. He was part of the Red Hot Chili mm-hmm. Peppers and also Jane's Addiction. Yes. But I'm going to talk about him in a second. Rockstar I Anakin. just... Huh? Go ahead. I just want to say really, really quick that this is, like, a hella trigger warning for, like, everything that you can imagine, so. As if my bisected body wasn't. Yeah, but this is, like, suicide, domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, tormenting. Well, I don't have that part. Abuse. Okay. Child abuse. Yeah, okay. Like, okay, okay, <laughs> okay, okay, it really okay. just covers it all. Yeah, yeah. So, um... I was reading some of the stories that happened, and even I was like, Ugh. Uncomfortable. Super uncomfortable. Yeah. But I'm going to talk quickly about the inspiration for this, Dave Navarro. He, because he plays a big part of this story. He was born on June 7th, 1967 in Santa Monica, California, as David Michael Navarro. He was the only son of Constance um, and James, who goes by Mike, Raul Navarro. Both his parents, Constance and Mike, were immigrants from Mexico. And fun fact, Dave's grandfather, Gabriel Navarro, was close friends with a Mexican silent film actor, Ramon Navarro. Nice. I know. I thought that was really cool that they're, like, connected to somebody famous in Mexico, Mm -hmm. and then Dave becomes famous in America. Um, So Dave was a band geek, like all of us. 
<laughs> and he was in marching band, like all of us. Was he really? <laughs> he was in marching band. Did he play? I don't know. Oh. Probably, Probably trumpet. Oh, mm-hmm. I don't think so. Guitar? You're going to say trombone? Trombone. I was going to say drums. Because I'm pretty mm. sure he played drums. No, he didn't play drums for Red Hot Chili Peppers. Play guitar. Yeah, he plays guitar. I don't know. He played an instrument in marching band. <laughs> and Didn't we all? Yeah, he did this with a future bandmate of his, Stephen Perkins, at um, Notre Dame High School in Sherman Oaks, California. And Stephen, the bandmate that Dave um, went to school with, they were just in that little band that we mentioned. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but Jane's Addiction. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. He's been in all other kinds of bands, like we said, Red Hot Chili Peppers, or he's had auditions with bands. Like, didn't he have an audition with, um... Oh, we just fucking talked about this. Yeah. What was it? So he even auditioned for a very popular band four times, according to what Macy just told me, because she's... He was asked to come in four times. Oh, okay, that's it, that's it. He did not come in. He never did come in. No. She's been obsessing over this like I have. Can't you tell? Um, for this band called Guns N' Roses. Like, holy shit, like, he... (laughs) I love Guns N' Roses. He's a... He was gonna be famous, regardless. He's like me. Yeah, he's just like, "Eh, I'm not feeling it, dude. I don't know. That was, like, in the 90s, though. Oh. So it was, like, after Guns N' Roses was, like, super... Big. Big. It was when, um... He was actually the first first choice of lead singer Axl Rose to replace Izzy Stradlin. Oh. And he tried to get him to come in and play with Slash, and he's like, nah, I'm good um i'll pass mm-hmm. right, i'm gonna be mm-hmm. on ink master mm-hmm. in a couple years i'm gonna make more money than all of you <laughs> anyways where, where the fuck was i this isn't about dave navarro but i'm just excited i know we're very excited <laughs> so we're just gonna keep fangirling apparently anyways dave's parents divorced and unfortunately his mother constance died when he was 15 um, Dave even produced and released a 2015 documentary about his mother's murder, calling it Morning Sun, which we haven't watched, and I purposefully don't watch or, like, listen to some things, because I don't want to, like... Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to explain. Like, I would love that... I don't want to give your... You want to give yourself bias. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, or I want to try to find some unbiased information. Yeah. That's why, like, for podcasts, I usually don't like listening to, like, one episode... Like, topics. Yeah, for, like, one podcast that, like, does a bunch of topics and they only do it for, like, one episode for 30 minutes. Like, I want something that, like, yeah, I want, (laughs) I wouldn't listen to our podcast. Not for research. For fun, I will listen to it. But, like, for research, I want, like, something, like, cold. Or, like, what you got for, like, the Black Dahlia murder. Like, something that, like, really goes into it. Yeah. Anyways. Da-da-da, digressing. Um... There's also an episode of Murder in the Family, which is a famous show, I guess. I've never seen it. Um, but it was about th- and the incident where Dave's mother died and Dave refused to be on it, but they ran the episode anyways. And Dave was a little upset. I'm sure. Because he was like, they got a whole bunch of facts wrong, first of all. And they said that he found the body and that was not true. And they also claimed that he turned to drugs after the incident, which is also what you can find on Wikipedia. But he disputes this by saying, in fact, he did not find the body and he didn't turn to drugs after that. He um, was upset and stated, quote, to say so would do a great disservice to those who have lost loved ones and not turned to self-medicating, end quote. (laughs) And then he goes on to explain that he was already on his way to using drugs before this took place. 
So I pretty, like, I'm sure, like, that probably enhanced his drug use, but I'm sure he's just claiming that it wasn't, like, the reason why he turned to drugs. You know what I mean? I love Dave because he uses his platform of being the super famous rock star and judge to talk to others about his struggle with depression, suicidal thoughts, and urges people to seek help and his drug addiction, which I'm sure we all agree everyone can use some help sometimes. Anyways, now we're going to talk about his wife, his wife, nope, his mom, Constance, who I'm going to start calling Connie Hopkins. She was born on October 12, 1941, in Detroit, Michigan. She was the oldest of two sisters, Barbara and Jackie. Connie worked as a model when she graduated from high school. She was even on The Price is Right, like an episode of that before it was super popular, like hmm. super early on The Price is Right's life. She was on it. Weird. Right? Um, sometime after, she meets Mike Navarro, who we mentioned earlier is Dave's father, and they get married. I'm not sure which comes first, marriage or a baby, but it doesn't matter. Um, Dave was eventually born in 1967. It was really hard for me to find exact dates of when people found each other. Cool. Um, sadly, when Dave was just seven, Connie and Mike divorced. Dave and Connie lived in Bel Air with the Fresh Prince. And I'm not sure where Mike lived, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you heard my joke. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm not sure where Mike lived, but I'm sure it was somewhere in California, just because there's reports of the custody agreement, and then he spe- he spent it's claimed that he spent time with his father. They didn't seem to have, like, a lot of drama about the situation. It was very, like, he spent time with his mom, he spent time with his dad, and they were good, hmm. um, based off the reports that I could find. Cool. Um, so how I think child custody should go. Yeah. But in 1980, exactly, Connie meets a man named John Dean Riccardi, and they start to date. John is described as a serial burglar and crazed with signs of instability. Solid. <laughs> then in January of 1983, Connie breaks it off officially after several attempts of trying to break it off, but she's like, this is it, I'm done. Boy, you gotta go. But there seems to be some type of, like, estrangement because every source calls John her jealous ex. So after their breakup, John spends his time stalking and tormenting Connie. And this is where the real DV shit starts to happen, or at least what I could find. And in my opinion, I believe it just escalated after the breakup. I'm sure it probably started before the relationship ended, but it really got bad here. So Connie started to receive several phone calls where the person calling would hang up when she answered. Um, John also would follow Connie to the gym where she'd work out and he'd watch her through, like, the big windows, you know? Because every gym has to have big windows for people to watch you work out. They do. It's weird. (laughs) John started to call one of Connie's friends, Marilyn, who I do want to say I found somewhere in one of my sources that her name was Megan. But the court documents that I found called her Marilyn. Okay. So I'm going to go with Marilyn because I feel like court documents are official. Mm-hmm. I also looked through all of my sources and I couldn't find where I found it was Megan. 
but I believe I found it somewhere or I was delirious. Who knows? Anyways, um, Connie's friend, Marilyn Young, to ask about Connie. So he would call and be like, hey, how's she doing? And Marilyn would be like, why are you talking to me? And he's right. like, oh, I'm just so sad. I can't believe we broke up, man. And she like torn up about it, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. If, that's probably not how the conversation went, sure. but that's how I imagine. Right. <laughs> also, in early January of 1983, George Hofer who testified at the murder trial recalled an event where he met with Connie to discuss a job opportunity and he was an executive for some advertising agency so probably something for like her modeling I imagine Mm -hmm. Um, they met over dinner and as they were getting ready to get in their vehicles they said goodbye by shaking hands and apparently George kissed Connie on the cheek very European I know he's fancy so the next morning George got a phone call at his hotel room from a man who had a New York or New Jersey accent who said he was Connie's boyfriend he stated he was very angry and questioned why George kissed Connie and then the man also told George if he didn't stop seeing Connie he was going to quote break her knees end quote weird so George explained to the courts that He told the man that he was happily married and not romantically involved with Connie. Like, it was just a friendly kind of gesture. However, the next day, George got another phone call from most likely the same man, who is now threatening that he knows George's itinerary back to Connecticut and will go to Connecticut and pay a visit to George's wife. And George just reiterated, hey, I have no interest in her, just a business thing. And then the man finally calmed down and told George not to tell Connie about the situation. (laughs) Sketchy. While testifying, George did recall that his itinerary was in his rental car along with personal information. So being a fantastic burglar, I don't know, maybe it'd be easy to break into a car, get some personal information... And use it against somebody. Yeah. That's what I would think. So I believe that John broke into the car, stole the information as leverage, and then followed him back to his hotel from their dinner date. So he probably was watching Connie the whole time, saw this guy kiss her after the dinner, and then followed him to his hotel room, and Hmm. then just got all crazy. It's fucked up. Right. So there was another instance near the end of January where Connie... She went to start her car, and it wouldn't work, and then suddenly John shows up, and he told her that he messed with the wiring. Hmm. Like, it's, like, taunting her. So, now it's even worse. He's trying to control where she goes, and then he just waits for her to show up so he can just fuck with her mind a little bit more, because that's fine. So, then this is super fucked up. Super trigger warning here. Um, In mid to late January, according to Connie's friend Marilyn, John broke into Connie's apartment uh, and spent the night forcing her to sleep with him. And though he was trying to force Connie to have sex with him, he couldn't get an erection and instead acted like he was having sex with her. So, ugh. Ew. Ew. So gross. On January 31st, according to Connie's planner, she had changed the locks that day. Hmm. So, yeah. Things just keep escalating, though. In early February, Marilyn recalls another incident where Connie agreed to meet with John to discuss his messed up behavior, but only agreed to it if it was in a public place. Which is very smart. Something I definitely recommend to do. But Marilyn was supposed to pick up Connie for the meeting... Before she could, John showed up to Connie's place, showed her a gun, and threatened her and coerced her into going away with him for the weekend. 
Obviously <laughs> fearful for her life, Connie agrees and convinces him to then rent a hotel, rent a hotel room in Los Angeles because she felt like it was less likely, she was less likely to get harmed if she were in a populated area where people could hear. Fair. And then, yeah, so being as smart as she could while in the hotel room, she somehow managed to call friends and family to tell them where she was and who she was with. And John did end up letting Connie go after the weekend was over. Hmm. Yeah. So it's just, like, weird. They just, like, st- I guess stayed in a hotel room for a weekend. And then he was like, okay, that's all I wanted. I don't know. Weird. Yeah. So in mid-February, Connie invited John to dinner in the company of Marilyn and Marilyn's then-boyfriend. And according to Marilyn's testimony, she says that both she and Connie, like, begged John to leave her alone, which he agreed to, but Marilyn remembers he had this angry smirk on his face. Mm. I hate the word smirk. Yeah. Soon after that, Connie and her friend, another friend, Sue, had breakfast with another friend when John just showed up and sat down at their table. Weird. And he didn't speak to anyone. Ew. Even though they were like, hey, what are you doing here? And that one of the friends had never met him before, so he even tried, like, introducing himself, and John just ignored him. He just shook his hand but didn't say anything. And um, he would just stare at Connie. And he did this for, like... A few minutes, and then he finally decided to leave. But when he did, he made the finger gun motion and pointed it at Connie and then pulled the trigger with his Hmm. finger gun. So his friends were kind of, or her friends were kind of like, uh, what just (laughs) happened? (laughs) Um, am I on punked? Yeah. Ashton Ashton? Kutcher. So then in late February, Connie found it difficult to open her sliding glass door that was in her bedroom. When she found that, she called her neighbor to look at it, and the neighbor states that the door's bolt latch had been damaged. So much so that when he pulled it out to inspect it, he states it looks as if somebody was inside Connie's bedroom and was sawing the lock almost all the way through. Yeah. Hmm. So. Problematic. Yep. But then the neighbor fixed it as best as he could and just, like, put it back in for her. And all of this made Connie fearful, and she wouldn't go anywhere alone makes sense. She even got an alarm installed into her residence. A bad move. No. Not a bad move. So, Connie eventually ended up writing a letter to John that was dated February 18th, but she never, like, mailed it or sent it. But it states, I'm... It's pretty long, but I want to do a little quote out of it. So, uh, here we go. I'm... Quote... I'm so sorry that you're still so angry and you feel a need for vengeance and punishment. You're accomplishing your goal. I feel like a walking dead person going through the motion of life, like a small wild animal who knows it's surrounded by a pack of wolves. The smallest sound or movement makes me jump. The sound of the phone is now frightening. Another hang up. I'm so locked up in my own house, afraid of every sound the walls have probably always made. I walk out of my house, a coffee shop, a gym, looking. Terror. Until I get into my car, and I know that the doors are locked, I can breathe again until I get out. Then it starts all over again. How long is this going to go on? End quote. Wow. I know. It's so, mm, so fucked. So, things keep getting worse, and this time it involves Dave. In the last week of February, Dave, who was 15 at the time, was home alone because he was sick from school and Connie was at work. John does what he does and he breaks into her home, not knowing that Dave would be there, and he enters the house from the sliding glass door that he probably fucked up and he picked it up off of its track to get in. 
and Dave caught a glimpse of John doing this and ran into the bathroom to hide. And after a while, Dave heard John go into the bathroom he was hiding in, but eventually he went downstairs. And so then Dave hears John listening to the answering machine, and it was around that time when Dave noticed that there was a gun that John had placed on the bathroom floor near the door. Eek. Yeah. Dave gets out of the bathroom and calls out for John, asking if he or his mom had come home or if someone was trying to break in. Like, I guess trying to, like, make a joke and be like, oh, uh, is it is it you or is somebody, like, breaking in, you know? So John responds to Dave, and then he goes upstairs to show Dave that the sliding glass door was on its tracks and no one had broken in. Everything was fine. And being a smart teen, Dave, like, plays along with this, and they eventually sit down on Connie's bed to talk. And this is when John told Dave that he was very upset over the breakup and that he was going to kill himself, but he wanted to talk to Connie first. And that was when John pulled a gun out from under the bed. Apparently, he's just got guns stashed around this house. Lord. And he pointed it at Dave while stating that he wasn't going to hurt him. He just wanted to kill himself. Then John apologized, pulled out some handcuffs, and handcuffed Dave to the bathroom that he was originally hiding in. Good lord. Yeah. So 30 minutes later, when Connie came home, Dave could hear John and Connie begin to fight, mostly about Connie asking where her son was. And 30 minutes after the fight started, so about an hour of being handcuffed to the bathroom, Dave heard what sounded like someone being slapped. I know. And then John returned to the bathroom. He was crying. He uncuffed Dave and told him not to tell Connie. (laughs) He has this theme of being like, don't tell Connie. Don't tell Connie I'm being a weirdo. (laughs) Even though she can see it with her own eyes. Fucking knows, dude. I know. So, because Dave was also afraid of John, he didn't end up telling his mom. He just said that he was, like, hiding, I guess. He never said that he was handcuffed or had a gun pointed at him. But after his death, he ended up telling the deputy DA about the incident, which is how we know this information. The weekend before the murders, uh, Marilyn recalls Connie not staying at her home for those days due to her not feeling safe. And the two of them left for the weekend. So Connie and Marilyn left. But before they left, John called Marilyn asking where they would be going. Yeah, and when Marilyn showed up to pick up Connie, John was outside the home staring at both of them, just, like, watching. Fucking weird. I know. So they left, and John initially followed them, but I guess they lost him somehow, and then they went on their trip, and it was uneventful. And then when Connie returned home, she decided that herself and Dave would be staying with Mike, ex-husband, and when they got back home to pick up clothes or whatever before they would go to Mike's house, Connie found that the front door alarm had been disabled. Right, right. Yeah. Connie also found out from her neighbor who helped fix the sliding glass door that when they when they returned that John had been inside of the home the entire time they were gone and admitted to him that he broke in through the skylight and he hid in the closet while they were there picking up their clothes. Good lord. Yeah. Um, so then on March 1st, Mike's answering machine somehow caught a conversation between Connie and an unidentified female where Connie was asking about how to get a restraining order. I guess apparently, like, if you, like, pick up, like, Red as the answering machine is, like, picking up and you're in another room and you don't know that the answering machine picked up, it's recording your conversation. That's how he, like, had explained it. Oh, okay. So, like, they had, like, handhelds, and yeah, then they had, like, the machine. Yeah, we don't know how that works anymore. We got these. Yeah, I know. I mean, I kind of faintly remember from when my dad would come home and just listen to them. 
Did you ever have an answering machine? Yeah. Oh, okay. We never did that, though. We never, like, had parts of our conversation recorded. Oh, yeah. No, I think we would be aware, because, ugh, our answering machine was so loud, and it was so annoying. It was in the middle of the house, and we had, like, this small-ass house, so, like, if you answered even from a cordless, you would hear, like, my dad's voice saying, like, hello, sorry, we aren't here to pick up your call. Right. And then, so we'd, like, race over and be like, hold on, hold on, <laughs> I have to yeah. stop the answering yeah. machine. Yeah. Uh, anyways. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> my, my father. I don't know oh, if that's what he said. He Charlie. probably said, yellow, this is Ralph's Bar and Grill. <laughs> he says that shit all the time. Anyways, so she was asking about how to get a restraining order, and later that day, since Mike heard this conversation, he actually recommended an attorney to Connie, and so she met with that attorney Good. to discuss on how to get that temporary restraining order against John. March 2nd, Connie was eating breakfast with Marilyn and her, Marilyn's partner, boyfriend, person, husband, I don't know. I saw very different attachments, so sure. it is her love interest. Her person. Yeah. When a very sleep-deprived John, again, appears out of nowhere and asks Connie to talk privately at another table, and according to Marilyn's testimony, she got to hear the two talk where John admitted to breaking into the home and stealing the letter that Connie had written to him. Oh, no. Yeah. And according, I guess, all according to Marilyn, I don't know how she would have known about the letter, so I believe her when she says that she heard this conversation. He says that he wished she sent it to him because up until that moment when he read it that he thought that she didn't care about him. It's like, no shit. Yeah. She probably cares about you, dude, but you need to fucking back up. Yep. Like, there's a difference between whatever. So, Marilyn also heard John tell Connie, quote, there are no locks that can keep me out of any place, and more terrifyingly, heard him say, I could hurt you right here and nobody would do anything. So then on March 4th, 1983, Connie had her friend Sue over for a girls' night since she didn't have Dave home, and... Marilyn was supposed to join, but wasn't able to, so it was just Sue and Connie. Um, they wanted to have a few drinks, so them and a couple friends went out for a bit, and at the same time, around 10 p.m., 11.30, or, sorry, 10.30 p.m., John met with an old girlfriend named Stephanie Brazadine and her friend Tony Natoli. I forgot that was her name. Tony Natoli. <laughs> Uh, they met with her at a restaurant. I love that name. Tony Natoli. <laughs> I love it. What's your name? Tony Natoli. What's your name? Tony Natoli. That sounds like a fucking pasta that we should be eating right now. It does not sound like a name. Oh, God. Okay. So get your shit together. According to Stephanie's testimony, John only talked about Connie and nothing else. And Stephanie had never met Connie, nor did she know who she was, and she thought it was, like, really weird. She's like, look, I just wanted to hang out, and you won't stop talking about this girl that you dated, but aren't, and I'm confused. I don't know. At the end of the meeting, John asked Stephanie to call Connie from a payphone. Um, He instructed her that if a boy answers to tell him that John loved him... But if a woman answered, Stephanie was to ask for Dave, to speak to Dave. I'm sure to Weird. get the message across that John loved him. Weird. Yeah. But nobody answered. I love you. Sorry for that one time I handcuffed you to the bathroom. And put a gun in your face. Yep. And I cried and said I wanted to kill yep. myself, but I put the gun Whoops. in your face. <laughs> Sorry. <Whoops. laughs> My bad. Happens all the time, honestly. Yeah. 
Uh, nice mix-up. Yeah, seriously. So nobody answered the phone, so that pissed him off. And Stephanie remembers him saying, quote, that fucking bitch Connie is not answering the phone, end quote. So when they were leaving, Stephanie said goodbye to John, and she maybe remembers seeing a gun in his car. She's not too sure. Mm. Like, okay. So John broke into Connie's apartment and um, shot her and Sue. Okay. Sue was just collateral damage, unfortunately. God damn. I know. They were just having a fun girls' night. So they just, he just walks right in and... Oh, I'll get into it. It was around 10.30 to 11 o'clock when neighbors heard the sounds of gunshots and muffled thumps. Then about 15 to 20 minutes later, which I'm wondering why nobody called the cops after the gunshots, because that's a pretty big window in which I believe cops would have arrived yeah, by for shots fired. Yeah. But what do I know? This is Bel Air. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't think she... I think she lived somewhere in LA at this time. So a neighbor states after th- 15 to 20 minutes after that they saw a large man whom they couldn't identify leave the home and drive away in Connie's car. Uh, Mike, who was actually the one that found the body, so Dave's dad. He found Connie was half-stuffed into the second-floor linen closet with a pillow over her face, which I think is a common way to show remorse or when you don't want to look at your victim's face. When you cover the face. Yeah, because you're, like, I don't know, affected by their death. Yep. And you should be. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Sue was found face down in Connie's bedroom. There were drag marks that indicated, though... That Sue had been moved from Dave's room to Connie's. So I feel like that was a fucked up way for John to be like, oh, I don't want Dave to find this. I don't want it to be in his room. Because he had this weird love for him, apparently. Minus the gun stuff. Yeah, minus the gun stuff. And so he, like, moved the body over? I don't know. I I am not a professional. I am just a podcaster. So Connie had... Two gunshot wounds. First entered the left side of her chest through her lung and exited her back. The second entered on the right of her chest, passing through her aorta and spine, only to get stuck at the back of her left chest near rib number five. So well, it didn't even matter. exit. That feels like that's the one that because yeah, at the aorta yeah. you don't you don't hit that and live oh. very rarely. So Sue was shot at close range, according to the court documents. It might have been as close as two inches. So, oh. like, he was in her face. And Sue was shot through her left hand near her thumb. Oh, so she went like that. Yeah. Uh, so she was holding up her hand to mm-hmm. protect herself. And it passed through her hand, entered into her jaw, only to go through her carotid artery and exit the back of her neck. Don't like that. I don't like that he was so close and he hit her in a face. Bullets recovered were from a 38 or 357 caliber, most likely being fired from a 38 caliber Colt handgun. The, the women's purses had been stuffed into Connie's closets in her bedroom, and the only items that could have been de- uh, that were deduced as missing were Connie's car keys that the witness saw an identified male leave in. Which I think it's weird. It's like if this dude is like looming around, like. How is he unidentified? Like, Mm -hmm. you're obviously a nosy neighbor. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Whatever. Anyways, turns out that Connie's car was parked two blocks away from the home, as well as Sue's car, but they were in opposite directions. So, I don't know if he got out to move Sue's car first, and then came back, returned the keys, and then got Connie's keys, and 
moved her car and then just left. Or if Sue, that was the only parking she could find and it's just a coincidence that they're parked in opposite directions. Hmm. I don't know, but I think that's kind of weird. weird. Especially since it doesn't mention Sue's keys were missing. So I don't know. But there was no signs of forced entry into the home. However, there was something off with the skylight's frame in Connie's bathroom. However, police didn't fingerprint or photograph it. But they did find John's fingerprints on the linen closet door where Connie's body was found. And one of the LAPD detectives in charge, Lee Kingsford, described the event as a, quote, jealous rage, end quote. Yep. Yeah. On this night, Dave was supposed to be staying with his mom. But they made last-minute plans for him to stay with his dad. Yeah, literally. Because, like, I bet... Honestly, I bet he feels a little bit of a confliction about that. Like, sad that, like, maybe he could have been there to do something about it. But then also, like, if he had been there, he would have died. Yeah. Dave even firmly believes that he's been... He talks about this all the time. Maybe not all the time, but in the things that I found that he talked Mm. about, he states that he believes he would have been the third victim. If he were there that night. Um, One article, Dave even says, quote, So I really do believe that that's some sort of divine intervention that I can't explain, end quote. Agreed, bro. Mm. Agreed. John obviously flees the scene. We know that. And when he leaves, he absolutely just, like, leaves Los Angeles. And he abandons everything. His car, his home, his motorcycle, and pretty much, like, all of his possessions. He just brings the bare essentials and books it. Hmm. Gets the fuck out of California. But when police go to his home, they found ammo, three handguns, a shotgun, and an empty box for thirty-eight caliber Colt handgun. Um, but they didn't find the gun or the ammo for it. Hmm. Later that month, um, not, like, a month later, but, like, this happened beginning of March, so, like, Within that same month, they issued an arrest warrant for John, and he gets away with murder for eight years. Wow. Yep. Eight fucking years. On January 4th, 1991, in Houston, Texas, John finally gets arrested. Can you imagine that traffic stop? No, it's even worse because it's not even a traffic stop. <laughs> what was it for? Um, He's found just like John List. Somebody no somebody way. watched an America's Most Wanted story titled Son of Murder Victim Becomes TV and Rockstar, which highlights the murders of Connie and Sue, and they were like... Thank goodness, because that would be one hell of a traffic stop. Yeah, I know, right? Like, uh... <laughs> yeah, but... I don't know. I'll get into that in a second. But it, for I think it just, it gives me, like, this crazy hope for, like, us crime freaks that, like, maybe eventually we're all going to just end up solving all the crimes because we've seen all the pictures and we know what everybody looks like. You know what I mean? I think the internet helps. Yeah, that's lot. true. The internet and podcasts and, like, the sharing of information these days. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't know. Either way, it gives me hope that we can start solving all these crimes. Totally. Because... Obviously, it worked. Yeah. We got John List. Yep. We got this dude. Yep. I'm sure there's plenty of others that America's Most Wanted has actually solved. <laughs> like, while in Texas, John was making a living as a burglar. We're apparently in the wrong line of business. But he has several aliases, and he's suspected by the FBI of being a suspect in more than 100 burglaries in Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami, and the New York areas. He gets around. Yeah, seriously. John also underwent plastic surgery to have his nose shortened and a mole removed. (laughs) So the fact that this person even recognized him is, like, crazy to me. 
When he was under arrest at the hearing at a federal court in Houston in April 1991, John tried to escape by kicking out the 10th story window. (laughs) (laughs) And Um, jump 10 stories, dum-dum. He apparently managed to break out the window and he stayed on the ledge for over 12 hours, threatening to jump the whole time before he was finally able to be convinced to come back inside. In 1994, John is still on trial for the murders. Dave and his father, Mike, attend the trials. You can see pictures of young Dave Navarro at these trials. This is where a Samuel Sabatino, John's partner in crime, testified that John admitted to him about the killings and painted a picture about that night. So, John broke into Connie's home through the skylight and waited for her to come home from having her night out with Sue and her other friends. When Connie and Sue did come home, Connie went upstairs where John confronted her. They obviously start to fight, and that's when he shot her. Sue obviously comes up the stairs to see what the ruckus is about, and John then shot her too. When confessing to Samuel, John joked about how he hid the gun in the roofing of his apartment in Los Angeles, which I wouldn't have thought about looking for a gun there. So, wonder if they found it afterwards. I have no idea. But, though we know John did it, I don't know if we should take Samuel's word as the truth, because Samuel was giving the statement in court as part of a plea agreement to reduce his sentences for three mm. felony burglary-related mm-hmm. charges. Mm-hmm. And he also uses this time to state that he wants to get even with John because John owes him $100,000, and John also gave the FBI information that led to his own arrest. LOL. So, John got Samuel arrested, and now Samuel is testifying to get John in trouble. So, I don't know (laughs) what's true and what's not. Either way, when John took the stand, he denied the murders. He- it was stated- I'm sorry. He stated that it was true that he felt depressed about the breakup and perhaps called Connie too many times and annoyed her. And he basically denied everything else that happened or said, yeah, it happened, but it was like this for events that where there were like multiple witness testimonies, like the breakfast incidents. He'd be like, yeah, I was there, but that's not how it happened. His witnesses were like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I actually, think that we all have the same understanding of what happened except for you. Actually. Yeah. So, when it came to his alibi the night of the killings, John stated that he flew to New York to visit his terminally ill aunt, and a friend drove him to the airport. Conveniently, that friend that drove him was dead by the time the trial was happening, so they couldn't confirm or deny that any of this happened. One day in 1999, during the trial, Dave recalls one specific incident in an excerpt from his 2001 book called Don't Try This at Home. He reflects on a time while he was on the witness stand, quote, I had to face the killer in court last year in 1999. I had to take the stand as a witness, and to the left of me were pictures of the crime scene on a fucking board. I had to ask for them to be covered, end quote. I feel, I feel bad. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. John was indeed found guilty and sentenced to death for first degree murder for the first degree murders of Connie and Sue by use of a firearm. Um, the jury also found that John committed Connie's murder while engaged in the action of a burglary. So that's I think that's one of the things that makes a first degree. Correct. They also uh, sorry, they also I don't know if this is a charge. Or just another, like, thing to put on the salt on the wound. But he was given two multiple murder special circumstance allegations. 
Sadly, on July 16th, 2012, the California Supreme Court reversed the sentence because he was denied a fair trial. Apparently, the judge for the trial mistakenly excused a prospective juror during jury selection, something about her conflicting responses in a questionnaire when asked about her views about the death penalty. According to the ruling, quote, the trial court erred by failing to conduct voir dire with respect to one prospective juror whose written questionnaire reflected conflicting and uncertain views concerning the death penalty and her ability to serve, end quote. So basically, I've never gone to jury duty or have had to do it, but obviously they have to take your stand on things to make sure that you're not going to be like biased by mm-hmm. your, you're going to be like the blind lady of justice. Yes, that's quite the image. So I guess apparently the questionnaire that she filled out, they think that she didn't understand the questionnaire, so she should have been re-instructed about what they actually meant and then given a fair chance to answer them correctly with the right understanding. Okay. So that's what they're proposing here that he didn't have a fair trial for because that one juror could have made a difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he, instead of sentenced to death, was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And at the time, he was one of the oldest people on death row at the age of 76. They also reversed the burglary and one of the multiple murder special circumstance findings. So basically, he's got only one special circumstance finding and the and the two first-degree murder charges. They hmm. dropped the burglary. Then on July... Whatever. <laughs> I know, right? Like, you killed somebody still, bro. Yeah. Uh, then on July 3rd, 2014, John appealed the sentencing, but it was upheld again after the court rejected John's attorney's request to overturn the sentence and dismiss the case. <laughs> A fucking double homicide? Based you want off what? Dismissed? Yeah, no. Like, what? Not how that works. No. So then in 2013, Dave and his best friend, Todd Newman, go to uh, San Quentin State Prison to visit John. I know. I know. Sorry. I just got really excited. Um, But this is where it gets even more, like, Dave Navarro-y. Apparently they drove up to the prison in a black stretch limo. I can't keep a straight face. What a bougie man. I know. This, here's the thing. This was his explanation. He said that they had to have the extra space because they were also filming the documentary Morning Sun. Oh, yeah. So they needed room for the cameras and stuff like that. But I'm just like, you couldn't have, like... I see a lot of explorers and expeditions. Yeah. Like, other cars. Go ahead, though. (laughs) I was just like, you couldn't have, like, put that stuff, like, in a hotel room and, like, just taking a rental car to the prison? No, you had to go in a stretch yeah, limo. Yeah, limo. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, it's so Dave Navarro-y. Whatever. According to Dave, after visiting, he, it wasn't what he thought it would be. He thought it would be, like, an angry exchange. He'd be like, fuck you, you killed my mom. I've... Also, I read that he has this, like, fat, like not fascination, but, like, obsession with overcoming his fears. So, like, that was one thing that he feared. He feared John. And so he's like, I have to finally overcome this point of my life so that's when he like goes there to like confront him right. and what a better time than when you're filming the documentary about their, your mother's death yeah none of it was filmed he said this is the one thing that he wanted off camera he wanted it just to be him and john and he said what he thought like i said would be an angry exchange ended up just being an awkward interaction yeah yeah i'm sure yeah like hey he's so 
to that was prison. feel bad for killing my mom. Yeah. Oh, man. And Sue. What? I keep forgetting about Sue. I don't know Sue. what the expectation was. I don't know. For that conversation, like. I don't know either. Did you have questions? Like, I wonder if he had, like, a script of things that he wanted yeah, to know. say to him. I don't know. He really didn't go... If he did go into anything about it, I didn't find it on the internet, so maybe mm-hmm. it's in his documentary. Yeah. I'm not sure. We'll have to watch that, because that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. So, here's some weird but cool shit. I've already kind of shared some of this with you that Dave has done to memorialize his mom, Connie. He got a tattoo from her modeling car- career when she was younger on his ribcage that Kat Von D did. Badass. I know. And then he, ugh, he got a painting of Connie in his own blood. You literally, if you Google it, guys, you can find it. It's yucky. I'll probably post about it, but it's pretty cool. It looks very similar to his mom in the picture that they have for reference, but he's, like, in this desert with, like, this easel where, like, there's this canvas, and you can see, like, there's a picture. They painted it out there. Yeah. I'm pretty sure because she's, they're in the desert when, like, someone's collecting the blood from him. So, like, I wonder if he's, like, sitting there watching while she's, like, painting this beautiful thing. she's like, I need more. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, hold on, we gotta get more blood. And then he just, like, takes pictures, like, staring at it in this desert. It's kind of weird, but, like, whatever. Yeah, super Dave Navarro. Whatever helps him cope with the loss of his mom. Yeah. If that's what he needed in the moment to take a moment. That's great. I don't think I'm doing that for my mom. No. Sorry. Nope. <laughs> no. That's outrageous. No. So, an article on the America's Most Wanted website says, quote, Dave describes his mother as a very spiritual person, very grounded and very earthy. She loved nature, loved children, and fitness, end quote. I also would like to end with a couple of quotes by Dave. First one is, quote, as the tide comes in and rolls out, the universe takes many shapes and constantly evolves. We are made of the same stuff. We are constantly changing and evolving and flowing, sometimes scary, sometimes beautiful, sometimes lonely, sometimes supported. Hang in there to allow the process and the shapes to change. I can tell you 100% that they do, end quote. One more, he says, please reach out if you find yourself in darkness. There is no darkness without light. Try to be willing to let it find you. Hmm. Yeah. That's nice. I know. So if these stories sound like something that you're going through, that you know someone else is going through, that you have heard other people going through, please, like, get help for yourself or get them the resources that they need. I don't want, I don't think anybody wants another person getting murdered because of domestic violence. It's unfortunately something that we literally see every single day at our mm-hmm. job. And I know it's hard. It's horrible. It's horrible to get help. It's hard. It's scary. It's, I don't know. It's scary because there are very big consequences that come with it that people don't realize. Yeah. Like, our goal is to end that. Right. Right? It's not just like a one time I'm going to get him out of here. He's going to go to jail for one night and then come back. Like He'll come back and everything will be fine. Right. Domestic violence laws are designed to end that relationship altogether because it is toxic and somebody could die. Yeah. Right. There's so many times where, like, you'll go on a call and we'll talk about it later and you'll say, like, they didn't realize that they were going to get arrested. Mm-hmm. They thought that we were just going to kick them out. Yeah. That's uh, that's 90% of domestic violence calls is a wife or husband calling about an event that happened and we go and we are required by the law, like, it's one of the only things that we have no discretion on because mm-hmm. it is very serious because... Shit like this happens. When it comes to do- domestic violence, 
on average, by the time it gets called into police, it's the seventh occurrence. Yeah. And that's probably vastly underreported. Oh, totally. 100%. So it's very serious, and it's known to escalate to things like this, so. Yeah. And Scary, but fucking do it. Call anyways, because you deserve better. 100%. I agree. In America, you can go to the National Hotline for Domestic Violence at thehotline.org. If you don't feel safe doing that, there's a pop-up. Literally, I was looking at this stuff at work, so sorry you might get looked into because people... <laughs> I looked up all of these websites and phone I, numbers I might I get looked work. into? Because I'm looking up dom- oh. how to get help for domestic violence. Good lord. I love you so much. Um... <laughs> But literally, as I was getting onto the website, there was this pop-up that came up that says, like, internet usage can be monitored, and if that's not good for your situation, hit the escape button before it goes into your search history. And um, if you are on the website, your keyboard, if you hit exit twice, the website will immediately shut down if you don't think you have time to hit the X button. And then if you aren't safe doing that, you can also call 800-799-SAFE, which is 7233, or you can text Love Is to 22522. Also on their website is where you can chat with someone to get information about, about how to identify abuse, get help, plan for safety, and support those who need it. Also want to mention the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is 800-273-TALK, which is 8255. They also have a website at nationalsuicideprevectionhotline.org where you can learn, get involved with suicide prevention, or get help for yourself. Also, President Trump signed into law that the National Suicide Hotline Designation Act, which is where a new three-digit number will be designated to help those who need it. It won't be effective until at least July 16th of 2022. So if you're listening to it now, it's not valid. It's not going to work. Please call 911 if there's an emergency. But after 2022, uh, the phone number will be 988. So... I think that's really cool, yeah. and I'm kind of wondering how that's going to work. I, I, I have no idea. I have no idea either. The logistics of that. I didn't know that at all until you said it. I only I just found out because I was doing all this research. Or... I don't know. I hope not. Yeah, I think this is I a good resource. A good idea. Yeah. So there's also crisis text lines for the United States. You can text 741-741. That's the number. I don't think that you can put, I think, anything in the body of the text, but that's the number that you will text to. For the United Kingdom, you can text to the number 85258. And then for Canada, you can text the number 686868. Also, for most 911 centers... If you're not able to call 911 in a state of emergency, most centers have the capability of text to 911. Please do this if you are unsafe and unable to call 911. If you are able to call 911, please call, 911. Please call us because we get information faster. Yeah. We can get help there a lot faster. We can get locations from you calling. There's a good chunk of time that we chunk of time chunk of time that we don't get accurate locations just from a nine one one call, so it's even more hit or miss with texts. So unless you give an address as your first text with exactly what's going on, uh, we're gonna have a lot more follow up questions. But mm-hmm. that's a- enough to like at least get somebody started to have an understanding of what they're going into. Yeah. So please check with your local um, authorities, victims advocates, anything, support groups, things like that to get 
involved if you feel like this is something that you would be passionate about um, or if you just need to get help for yourself. Yep. We just don't want you to be like another victim victim of yep. something that I feel like all crimes are preventable, but this one makes me extra sad because we literally, I just gave off a million, not a million, but a lot of things that Connie went through and it wasn't until like three days before her murder where she was trying to get a restraining order. Mm -hmm. Like these are red flags that should have been addressed earlier, I think. Mm -hmm. Not saying that she did anything wrong. Maybe she felt like she was safe, but that letter that she wrote, I don't think she yeah. was felt like she was safe. She right. wasn't even staying in her own home. No. Like these are things that like you need to get help. Yep. Something else needs to change here. Yep. That's all I have to say. Okay. Okay. Sorry for the heavy episode, guys. No. You're fine. Let me just dump all these hotline phone numbers on you. <laughs> They'll be in the bio. I'll put them in the bio for you guys so you can just look and click if you need to. Cool. Well, that's all I have. You don't have anything else? Um, no. Okay. Um, you can find us on Instagram at who knew podcast. You can email us at who knew podcast 666 at gmail.com. And you can find us on Patreon as well. Yep. And that's we it. We are there. Okay. Oliver. Ollie. Say goodbye. Is he sweet? Nope. He's awake. Oh, good boy. Hi, sweet boy. Oh.